0: Good morning, and welcome to A.D. 79, the year of Vesuvius, Episode 1. Today is January 1st. Imagine you are in Rome in that fateful year, perhaps recovering from a late night celebration. If you are an early riser, you might see out in the street the College of Priests, white robed, solemn faced, making their annual parade across the city of Rome stopping long enough at each of the city's many temples, making offerings according to the needs of the one, the customs of the other. You would certainly catch the whiff of the incense and saffron sprinkled onto crackling braziers, gradually filling streets with their sweet smell. A welcome change from the normal smells of that city. How this day went would determine how the rest of the year would go, and no god or goddess should be snubbed. For those lesser gods, and there were many, Those without a dedicated priest, the Rex Sacrorum, king of the clergy, took responsibility. Notable among these was Janus, the Roman god of endings and beginnings, gates and doorways, and of war and peace. In times of peace, the doors of his temple were closed. They were usually open. In the first chapter of his poem, The Fasti, the Book of Days, or on the Roman calendar, the Roman poet Ovid chats with that god. The old age called me chaos, I belong to earlier time, and thence deduce my song. Then I, who is a lump of mud, a clod, received these features worthy of a god. Yet still in this reduplicated face I bear a remnant and chaotic trace. And so on and so forth. Visual representations of Janus have two faces back-to-back on a single head, allowing him, them to look both forwards and backwards. The symbolism is obvious, and curiously there is no Greek equivalent for this fellow, or fellows. Janus, of course, gave his name to the month of January. Ever since then, in return for his favor in the coming year, Janus was given a special offering of Janualia, small cakes made especially in his honor, also a bit of wine. Jove, ruler of all the gods, was not so easily bought off, his temple on the Capitoline Hill loomed over the city, and on January 1st, that band of priests mentioned earlier completed their annual obligation with a visit. For this last act, they were accompanied by a few strong, bare-chested men Popi, Victimarii, Cutrari various titles are given, leading the sacrificial bullock. Not just any bullock would do. Only the finest white bullocks, Boes Niveos, from Felerii, not far north of Rome, were suitable for sacrifice. The animal, its horns entwined with garlands and shining with gold leaf, was the object of considerable attention for the locals. Bullocks this fine were not an everyday sight, and it was, after all, working on their behalf. Within living memory, unauthorized killing of such a beast, even accidentally, was a capital offense. Nothing but the best for Capitoline Jove. Keeping the animal calm for that last mile was a matter of some concern. The idea was that the bullock was enduring this event willingly. Since a bullock's mood cannot be guaranteed, and since bullocks are powerful animals, quite capable of maiming or killing anyone in their way, any means of calming the savage beast on this unexpected trek was to be desired. A sculpture dating some decades later shows a flautist as part of the sacrificial company, whether this helped lower the general tension is anyone's guess, but it was worth a try. A nervous animal, or worse, one that bolted, could render the entire sacrifice null and void with bad luck to follow the entire year, and that would never do. Assuming the entire party reached the summit without incident, the rexicorum sprinkled wine on the animal's brow and crumpled some cakes. Two strong men would grasp the horns and snout, and, with as little force as they could manage, force the animal's head down while the executioner, a mason or a butcher perhaps, someone who could be trusted to dispatch the huge beast quickly and efficiently, would bring down the axe. Ovid describes the animal bowing its neck voluntarily, but Ovid was a poet and played up the fiction that the animal was a knowledgeable participant. The warm body of the corpse was now slit open, and men trained in picking up mystic signals peered into the steaming entrails, inspected the guts, liver, and heart for omens. If the coming twelve months appeared favorable, the butchering continued, the meat was roasted, shared with Jove, and word sent down that all was well with Rome. Absent any record that anything bad was coming in 879. We will assume that the omens were favorable and the population, about a million strong at this time, relieved that the gods were smiling, or at least not frowning, could wander the streets and the forum in festive-colored clothing, making every brief encounter an occasion for mutual calls for blessings and good fortune in the upcoming year. Ovid, done with his interview with the god, offers some words of New Year's advice. Linguis animisque favete, nunc dicenda bonae sunt, bona verba die. Be positive in word and mind, now only good words on this good day. The holiday was so popular that by 8079 it had expanded into three days, which was nice. Between family and friends, small gifts, strenua, were exchanged, cakes and dates, figs and honey, and even cash money. The more virtuous Romans made sure to set aside a small portion of the day for a little work, a sort of practical demonstration of intention, a solid New Year's resolution. Just enough to make a showing, spark the engine for the new year. In Rome, idleness was frowned on by man and gods. New Year's Day was also part of the civic calendar. A city and empire the size of Rome needed a solid administration and New Year's was as good a starting point as any to refresh the bureaucracy. Holders of government offices now formally took up their jobs. Across the empire, from Spain to Syria, Britain to North Africa, generals had their men swear an oath to the emperor. So did members of the Senate. On this day also, the two new consuls, second only to the emperor in power, were expected to join the priests on the march up the capital line As it happened, the two consuls for this year were the emperor himself, Vespasian, and his son, Titus. Vespasian was also expected to enter the Curia and provide the Senate with what was, in effect, a State of the Empire address. The senators themselves might have hoped for some appropriate personal gifts from Vespasian as well. All who lived in Rome proper at that time could admire the city— a city Augustus had transformed from brick to marble 65 years earlier, and Nero had begun to rebuild after the Great Fire 15 years earlier. From the capital line, one could look across to Rome's other six hills, the temple rooftops, apartment buildings, the Tiber River, its docks and warehouses, public squares and lesser temples, the very nearly completed and very imposing Flavian amphitheater, later called the Colosseum. All 620 acres squeezed snugly inside the four-century-old Servian walls. The walls themselves were pierced by 16 gates, giving out to rural roads lined with tombs that connected all the world with this unlikely city. Noisy, busy, crowded, at times dangerous. Fire, whether from bakeries, glassmakers, food stalls, braziers for warmth against the cold or oil lamps against the dark, was a constant worry in the pre-electric age, but people were at least safe from outside armies. Another civil war like that of 8069 seemed unlikely. We can hope that most people had a pleasant enough holiday. Certainly the previous ten years had been among Rome's better periods. There is no record of what the College of Priests found inside the bullock they sacrificed that morning. Had it been extreme one way or the other, we would probably have been told we do know, however, that Romans considered even numbers to be unlucky. This year? I've been calling this year AD 79 in deference to modern usage. Roman officials counted the years as AUC, ab urbe condita, from the foundation of the city. What is AD 79 to us, to them, was AUC 832. Next time, we go back those eight centuries for a brief potted history, tracing how Rome grew a small village of poor, hard-working social outcasts to the stunningly rich, sprawling empire it was to become. Nothing about that progress was inevitable, and there were plenty of twists, turns, and interesting men and women that brought Rome to this point, as we shall see. Until then, thank you for listening.